all of us. Everyone at the state's academic medical center. All working together to deliver complete care now and for generations to come. All over the state, including hospital and clinic locations from the Delta to the Gulf Coast. All for one reason. You. The University of Mississippi Medical Center. All for your health. This is an MPB Think Radio podcast. To hear previous shows, visit mpbonline.org or download the MPB Public Radio app to listen on your iPhone or Android phone on demand. Contractor ever tell you the price of something and it sounds so high you think, "Eh, maybe I'll try it myself. Some jobs just aren't that difficult, and yes, you can do it. If you want to find out how to do those things, listen to Fix It 101, podcast everywhere. From MPB Think Radio, this is Southern Remedy. I'm Dr. Jimmy Stewart, Professor of Internal Medicine and Pediatrics at the University of Mississippi Medical Center. And you are listening to the Southern Remedy program where you can call in with any type of question that you might have about your health or the health of someone near and dear to you. It might be a new prescription, new side effect, maybe a new uh, series of symptoms that's uh, got you a little puzzled, or maybe a new diagnosis you just don't quite understand and want some more input on that. We'd love to answer your questions this morning or point you in the right direction of where you need to go with those. Email us. That email address is remedy at mpbonline.org. Hope everybody's having a great Wednesday. We're in that time of year when it could be uh, about a 30 to 40 uh, degree shift in uh, in temperature. So uh, it's going to be interesting the next 24 hours, I think. So a lot of wind out there when I was coming to MPB Studios. But uh, I hope you're having a great time. I know a lot of people are doing a lot of yard work this time of year. Certainly some of the trees, particularly ornamental trees, are starting to flower. I saw I've got a, um, a couple of plum trees in my yard that are starting to flower. And that you know what that means for all of you seasonal allerg- allergy sufferers that uh, – the trees are going to pump out some pollen. My prediction is going to be a horrendous pollen year. Uh, with uh, the wet winter that we've had, we've got the water table and everything's just primed. And th- uh, that combined with the dry summer may may mean a little bit more pollen. So if you are one of those people like myself who struggles with that, particularly in the spring and fall, you might want to go ahead and take some precautions. There's some great ways to uh, avoid those type of allergic conditions. Uh, Number one, you know, it's really impossible to get away from pollen, even indoors. Uh, And certainly if you're, if you stayed indoors 24 seven, that might decrease it. And you had good filtration system in your house, in your central air. Uh, But uh, even then you're going to get exposed to it. So doing a a daily nasal wash can help. Um, You do want to use the appropriate technique and appropriate saline uh, uh, water, not not tap water from your from your uh, faucet. And um, sometimes you may want to use there are some over the counter medications and drugs like fluticasone, uh, which is a nasal steroid that you can spray in your nose once a day. And uh, that can be a great preventative measure because it's decreasing that allergic response, particularly if you have nasal type symptoms of that stuffiness, sneezing, uh, post nasal drip. 
all the things you probably hear from me time to time. If you uh, if you listen a lot, you're like, hey, he sounds stopped up today. That's exactly right. That's a good bet any time of this time of year for me, for Dr. Jimmy. And then beyond that, there are some other medications. So some more systemic medications like some of the antihistamines, particularly the non-sedating antihistamines. These are things like Claritin or Zyrtec or Allegra. Uh, and they can help, again, you're sort of blunting that immune response Uh, that allergic response. And it's really your immune system that's incorrectly uh, responding to those things and having a very robust inflammatory response. And that's what causes all those symptoms. So just keep that in mind this time of year. And you might want to Uh, I have patients every year that sort of push it and they wait till they get the symptoms. Well, if you know that the pollen counts and there's ways to go online and find this, if the pollen count is high in your area uh, or you see that it's moving up week to week, then it may be time to go ahead and uh, start doing some of these precautionary things to help decrease those symptoms. We're going to go to our first caller of the morning, and that's William from Hattiesburg. Morning, William. Hey, how you doing, Dr. Jimmy? Good. How are you? All right. I have this uh, new medication. I don't even know how to pronounce it. Can you it, can you spell I, it? Yeah, I'm going to spell it out for you. Okay. It's C-H-O-L-E-S-T-Y-R-A-M-I-N-E. And what they tell me is far... Like if you had your gallbladder out. Oh, you're still, okay. You're yeah. Still making gall and it's going down into your uh, yep. intestines and giving you some problems with like yeah. that. But on the side effects, it's really it's got a lot of bad side effects for this kind of medication. I wonder what you could tell me about it. Yeah. So so this is a medication that's used uh, as you said. If you've had some uh, gallbladder type symptoms and. Um, it it helps to sort of bind up that, you know, our gallbladder sort of stores that, and it gets sort of solidified in these little crystals sometimes, and it's sort of a sludgy type thing that gets excreted out of the body through the intestines. When you take the gallbladder out, it doesn't have time to get concentrated, so a lot of those bile acids that are normal for your liver to make, um, they can cause some GI issues, and the, the medication you and I have, I'll tell you, William, I have a hard time with medication sometimes too, right? So this is a, this is one of the harder ones, uh, but basically it's binding up. It's helping to bind up those bile acids in a way that causes less GI side effects. Now you're right. If you look on the side effect profile of that, it's going to have a ton of stuff that are potential things. Um, keep in mind that a lot of those are less than 1% just because you have to include every single uh, potential side effect, and some of those side effects may not have even been been caused by the medication. It may have been caused by something else going on in that person. But I think uh, I'm not aware, and I haven't gone over this in a in a while for this medication. But I'm not aware of any side effects that are potentially non reversible. In other words, if you had them, you could stop the medication and they would go away. Um, so I think it's worth a shot, particularly if you're having a lot of GI problems from that. Is that it, is that sort of along the same lines as what what they prescribed it for? Yes, that's true. Uh, all right, I understand that, and uh, I'll try to deal with it and see how it comes out. But there's one other quick question. Sure. Why does what is uh, how does it and why does 
certain medications makes people itch? Yeah, that's a great question. So there's a couple of different mechanisms. So, you know, why, why do medications, some of them cause you to, to itch? Sometimes it is a true allergic response. So um, it uh, causes a certain allergic response and the way that your body, again, in the same kind of way that if you had, uh, if you break out in hives, uh, if from a, an allergen that's in the air, medication can do that too. And um, sometimes it's accompanied by a rash. Sometimes it's not. It's just the itching. Um, but all medications, you know, potentially you could have an allergic response like that. Now, some of them do, inter- they, they interact with a type of, of blood cell called a mast cell. And mast cells, their job is to release their substances into the blood. And some of those substances are things like histamines, which cause a lot of increased uh, blood flow and increased fluid uh, to certain areas. Those are the kind of things that get released by mast cells and other cells and attracted to certain areas of the body that would cause the itching. And um, there are other environmental things that you can do. I know a lot of my patients, they have an, an exaggerated response to temperature, so particularly warmer temperatures. So if you get into a hot shower, you can have it- itching either all over your body or in certain areas of the body. And then there are other things, too, that can cause itching that is uh, abnormalities of what your body does. If you have too much uh, bilirubin, which is one of the substances that you can find in bile, it's made in the liver. And if you have a if you don't process that appropriately and it builds up in your bloodstream, you can have a lot of systemic itching from that. So it's not just medications. There's other things that are there. And then any kind of like irritation to a body part or area, like if you get bit by something, if you have even a, a scrape or a cut, if you think about it, that inflammatory response that's created appropriately to help heal that spot, uh, whatever, whatever you know, was the damage that was done, um, it can cause itching um, as it heals up. So that's a natural mechanism. And nobody understands exactly why. You know, you would think it'd be sort of counterintuitive, particularly if it's, you know, if you're forming a scab over something, you don't want to pick at it and then remove the scab because it's healthy to keep it there. But that's sort of a background. There's about five or six different mechanisms, main mechanisms behind itching and why it's there. But some medications will do that, and it's a direct effect of the medication. In other instances, it might be an allergic response to it. All right, Jimmy, you do a lot of good for the public and a lot of good information. Well, I appreciate it, William. You take care. Thank you for listening, and thank you for calling in. Some people need permission to go ahead and call. I'm giving you permission today. There may be something that's been on your mind for a while, and you're like, you know what? I really need to call, but I, I don't think that would be a good question. I'm telling you, it'll be a good question. I promise you. Um, there are always great questions that we can tackle. And the other good thing about that is it may not be just your question. There's probably somebody else in our listening area that is thinking about the same thing, or maybe they this is going to sort of jog their memory or give them some information. So uh, one thing I like about Wednesdays is you drive that process. So if you've got a question, call in right now and uh, share that with the rest of us, and hopefully we can answer the question directly for you. I love podcasts. Um, I listen to podcasts now just about everywhere I drive, unless I'm talking to somebody on the phone. So it's just uh, something that I, I find to be convenient. And 
understand that is very helpful. And I keep up with a lot of the uh, some of the medical literature. There's a couple of podcasts I listen to um, on different areas. But uh, did you know that you can listen to Southern Remedy uh, on our podcast, any podcast app that you have, just search for that, and you can listen to us. Uh, you know, you know, a lot of people have things that uh, that happen. Like a lot of my friends are like, "Hey, I'd love to listen to you, but I really got I'm pretty busy on Wednesday mornings, and I I miss it." Uh, you can go back and listen to that at your leisure, whatever's convenient for you, or maybe if you just catch half the program and you want to go back and listen to the parts you missed, just uh, download Southern or download Southern Remedy on any podcasting app, and uh, you can reach us right there and get the information that you need. A lot of things in the news these days about different diets and uh, comparisons of those. You know, we've mentioned here before, and a lot of people have called in about the best diet for things like heart disease or hypertension or diabetes. And diabetes is one of those areas that has really gone through a lot of changes over the years. We used to have sort of a counting carbs diet or a different type of diabetic diet where you there were some foods that you could never eat and then other foods that you were encouraged to eat in different amounts. Well, we know now, really, you can just about choose any type of diet. A lot of people prefer one or the other. Some, you know, might uh, want a diet that's just high in fruits and vegetables and not a whole lot of meat. Some people might like more protein sources in their diet or animal proteins. So there's all kinds of different things you can do. But we've talked about sometimes we've, we've talked about things called the glycemic index or the glycemic load. And that's just a way of measuring in different foods how it releases the natural sugars in that. And there are some foods that have a higher glycemic index that release much more blood sugar much faster, and that can cause sort of spikes in the normal blood sugar uh, levels that you have after you eat those foods. And that can be in both normal individuals and people who have diabetes. And if you contrast that to foods that have lower glycemic indexes, it really is a much slower release of that glucose, of that of that sugar in the food into your system. And it has been a little bit controversial whether the glycemic index has uh, is associated with a, a healthy way to really address, one of the healthy ways to address your diabetes. And most of the time, most of the studies have shown that it has been. But there was a, a recent study that looked at that and compared it to sort of a, a low-carbohydrate um, low diet over, overall with the choices of foods, and it did show similar effects. So it has been validated as one way to do that. And I always encourage my diabetic patients or my patients with diabetes that um, – that they look for different things that are going to fit for them and look for some of the triggers. You know, food is one of those things that because it is not only triggered by hunger um, and by what we need to eat, it's also uh, often associated with social functions, with some of the reasons behind why we eat. So I ask people to really think about that, and, and particularly if they're overweight, to think about what are the reasons why they eat. Maybe they're bored. Maybe they're depressed. Maybe when they get anxious, they go and eat your favorite new variety of Oreo. We were talking before the program about all the different Oreos out there. Uh, But, um, you know, there's all kinds of different reasons why you might do that. And thinking about that and restructuring some of those 
to give you joy in what you do in connection with other people um, and get the nutrition that you need can be very helpful. I know some patients, they, they sort of take an austerity uh, view to this and they they say, you know, well, I'm just never going to go out to eat. It's just impossible to do that. I think you can do that. You can go out to eat and you can even go out to eat at fast food places if you know how you're going to eat, have a plan for that and know some of the options that you have. Um, and you can still do that in a way that can be very, um, very uh, helpful to whatever problems that you have. Even if you don't have diabetes, that's something we probably should think about. Um, but that is food really is a type of medication that we take in on a day in, day out basis. We're learning much more about that. It can affect all the different parts of the body. It also can affect our gut health. You know, you have a lot of bacteria in your gut and those are good. There are good bacteria that are in there. And they're doing things like making some nutrients for us, like vitamin K, for instance. And uh, they break down a lot of uh, the food into particles that can be very beneficial. Sometimes they give off uh, um, chemicals and substances that act like hormones to decrease the amount of, uh, of, of drive for wanting to eat more. So all kinds of different things. And most of that can be traced back to eating a healthy diet. And by healthy, I mean lots of fruits and vegetables uh, limited meats, limited processed foods, limited, limited processed sugars. So just think about that, uh, about where your food comes from and different ways that it might be affecting you. And if you do have one of those other conditions we talked about, certainly you might want to check out different ways of addressing it that fit into your food preferences and fit into your normal day. Now, we get a lot of orthopedic questions in clinic. Uh, certainly, the orthopedic doctors get the most of those, but before they see the orthopedic daughter, doctor, uh, usually they'll present to a clinic with a problem. And um, one common thing that I get is it can be any type of, of body part. If you have a little bit of a pain there or maybe pain for a long period of time, I think there's a perception by a lot of people that you can wait a long time and not address something. And then when it gets really bad, you can address it and they can fix it in the same way that you would if you came in, you know, after a couple of weeks of having the pain. A good example of that might be shoulder pain. We certainly have a lot of of our listeners call in about that. Uh, rotator cuff injuries are common, but if you don't do something about it, and it may not be surgery, it might be physical therapy combined with, uh, with uh, medical therapy. It might be an injection into that joint space, uh, depending on what's causing the problem. But a proper diagnosis is always the first step in doing that and addressing it in ways so that you don't have chronic problems. I have unfortunately seen some patients that they put it off for months didn't really address it, and then all of a sudden you've got a lot of scar tissue in there, you've got irreparable tendon or muscle damage or ligament damage or even damage to the joint uh, space itself, the articular surface, and those kinds of things are much harder to fix, um, and uh, it, it may cause some long-term problems. So the point being, you know, if you have something that's bothering you beyond a couple of weeks and it's or- you think it's orthopedic-related, I think you need to go ahead and see somebody for that um, and not uh, not sort of blow it off for a long period of time. Uh, you know, the other thing that we should think about with uh, other than allergies for this time of year is just some overall health things during the different seasonal changes. And 
That might be protective gear if your child is playing sports, or it might be, you know, getting things in working order so that you don't have a, uh, if you haven't ridden your bike in six months and I get back out there on it, you might want to have it checked out before that so that you don't have any problems. So just think about those kinds of things in transition times of year, not just for whatever you're doing, but how it might affect you in a positive or negative way. Let's go to Mikey from Mobile. Good morning, Mikey. Hey, good morning. Thank you, doctor, for taking this call. Sure. Um, I've, I've tried a bunch of times, and um, uh, it may be more than one factor at work here. Um, it started with t- trying to take vitamins and other pills that I've taken with no problem for years. But the coating on it is kind of more plasticky than it used to be. And there seems to be some similarity on those, particularly even the small vitamins and things. Now, the other factor is, and I, I heard some information about this. Um, I know, I've heard previously that um, women in particular, as we progress, you know, along life's <laughs> road, right. um, uh, that there is a narrowing of our esophagus and uh, that there is also... Now, what I heard recently is that if there has been scarring of your esophagus, which happened to me, I'm pretty sure, during an intubation um, when I was much younger in a a surgery. And so anyway, to make a long story short, I've almost choked, literally, to to the extent that I'm almost afraid to try to test any vitamins. And I know that there are the gummies and things, but you know I'd rather not pay the, the extra fortune that they cost. Yeah, Can I you think. Help me. Yeah, I think those are good points. So the first one, you know, the first question about coatings. So there are some either vitamins or. Uh, medications, and they are designed to release the substance. As you know, a lot of people would think that whole tablet is the substance, and that's that's actually not always the case. Um, and there's some substances that need to be released in the stomach. There's some some medications that need to be released in the stomach, some that need to be released in different parts of the small intestine. So you want that release where it's optimally absorbed or can work where it's supposed to. And the delivery system, which is the tablet itself, if you think about that, it's almost like a, uh, a skeletal structure that's holding the, that substance in that tablet uh, or a capsule. And it needs to, it's designed to dissolve in a certain way and under certain situations. Uh, a good example of this might be uh, Synthroid, which is a common uh, replacement hormone for, for an under-functioning thyroid. Uh, and we know that that hormone, that medication in particular, can be interfered with by taking it with other medications to prevent it, its absorption. So, and that may change over time. You know, a different manufacturer may pick up that medication if it's been out for a while, and it might be a little bit different. But they're all designed to release at a certain point. The second question about having uh, a stricture or a narrowing of the esophagus. I'm not aware that there's any differences in women or men, and that's certainly not a normal phenomenon as you get older. It shouldn't do that. Now, you can have either scarring of the esophagus, which is just the muscular tube between the upper part of the uh, lower part of the throat and the stomach, 
Um, or you can have a stricture or scar tissue in pretty much all the way along the length of that. And it might be from a previous procedure. It might be in some people uh, a, a problem with the musculature that's moving things normally through the esophagus. It might be chronic reflux that is causing some scarring of the lower part of the esophagus. Whatever the reason, you're right, Mikey, sometimes it can interfere with the types of medications that you can take. And in some instances, there may be some alternatives that are either liquid or that they might be softer in consistency. But I I would challenge you to, number one, what's the bare minimum of things that you need to take? Because you may be taking some things that there's not a need for that. I'll give you an example. Go ahead. May I interrupt this for a moment? I don't take any medications. Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah. And vitamin-wise, I, I include vitamins on that, too, just because, you know, a lot of people will say, well, I would need to take vitamins, and I'll say, well, how many do you take? And they'll start naming them off, or maybe they bring them well, with I, them. I used to. I used to. But when I, when I did take them, I gradually took them. I would not take the same one or take the same thing every day. Gotcha. I would space them out according to what... It felt like my body. Yeah. And I I think if you've had if you've had strictures or problems like that, I would just minimize that because you can actually get the same amount in most cases, the same amount of the things that you're trying to get into your body through vitamins or other supplements. You can do that through a healthy diet where it's you know, you can actually chew the food up or 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 drink that. So uh, but I think that that's a good point that you you need to bring up for some people that do have that, if they do have to take a medication or a supplement, then... Is it possible? Is it possible to liquefy the pill yourself and still have it be effective? Not in all cases. I understand that, you know, that some of it has to be released in a different place and all that stuff. But would that work? Uh, it, It will with some medications, but not all. And you really need to consult your pharmacist about about that. You know, some patients they can't use the they can't swallow pills at all for whatever reason. They may have had surgery, they may have had cancer, and they may have a a tube that goes directly into the stomach or the intestine. And there's some things, for instance, that you can crush up and put in that tube, and there's some things that you can't. And you may interfere with both the delivery system. Uh, of that, or you might cause more damage, you know, to to your body or however you're delivering that. So you really need to like it needs to be sort of case by case basis to say, okay, is this safe to crush? A lot of things are, um, but some things, particularly if they're extended release over time, uh, medications that you should not do that. Well, I did uh, also um, for a while. It was okay to use something like. Uh, a vitamin E, you know, capsule mm-hmm. and coat and coat the problematic, whatever it was. But it seems to be increasing. Yeah, um, over uh, over time, you know, those kinds. Problem, so I think I think it's a scarring thing from that yeah. intubation. I, Mikey, I think I would I would see if you could see if you're not already regularly seeing a, a GI specialist. I think by those symptoms, I think I would probably point you in that direction because. What they can do is they can look directly at the esophagus and also see if there's any narrowing. And they can do some things on the spot to help with that. We're going to go to Brandon from Pontotoc. Good morning, Brandon. Good morning, doctor. I uh, just have a question. I I don't think these two things are related, but I fell during the ice storm up here and hit the back of my head. But 
about the same time I started having this thing where when I lie down at night and I turn my head from one side to the other, I, it starts spinning. Um, and the reason I say I don't know if it's related is also because when around the same time I started having a lot of bloody discharge. I'm sorry if that's too graphic uh, from my nose. Not, not for me. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Yeah, so... I don't know if this is something that's maybe sinus-related or something that maybe I need to seek further diagnostic work uh, for, but those are the main symptoms. I have another symptom that's developed, which is I uh, walk any distance and I get really short of breath, hmm. and that, that may not be related to it at all. It's, yeah, as far as the um, the head spinning, that sounds a little bit like you've got a problem with your inner ear vestibular system. So the, the vestibular system is uh, – so the ear, inner ear does two things. It allows us to hear, but it also is one of the major centers in the body that allows us to uh, know where we are in space, know where we are so we're not falling over. And a good way to mess up that system is to put somebody on like the old tilt-a-twirl at the playground, and you just move them around and around and around, and it causes movement. There are three little, it almost looks like little roller coasters, but they're called semicircular canals, and there's three of those in each of your ears, and they help detect, they have fluid in them, and then they have these little rocks called otoliths. I'm not making this up, and little hairs. And depending on movement, in three directions of space, these uh, canals are oriented in each of those three directions, and the movement tells your body where it is so you don't fall over all the time. And uh, if you have damage to one or one side or both sides of that, then you can have exactly what you described. And usually it's something where you're moving in space in one or two different directions. So as you said, like when you're laying down or getting up from bed and turning your head to one side, that tells me the problem is probably in your inner ear. I don't know that it's, okay. a, it's, it's can be linked to that fall. Now, a lot of times you can have a fall that's really bad and a head injury, and you can have damage to those otoliths, um, and they're very sensitive because they have to be sensitive to movement. And sometimes that takes a long time to get that back. But I would go to an ear, nose, and throat doctor uh, or an otolaryngologist. Okay. They have one of the longer names of us physicians. So, um, And what they can do is they can do a couple of maneuvers in the exam room to, first of all, confirm this is what's going on, and then also to show they can do a correction maneuver uh, this is one of those cool things that we can do in the office, and you may not even if you may want to ask your physician if they're comfortable doing this because you don't necessarily have to go to an ENT unless it's a recurrent problem. But uh, but they could do those okay. two maneuvers to sort of recreate the sensation and also fix it in real time and show you what to do if it recurs. There may be a way that you can do the same thing. Um, yourself oh, wow. and okay. to correct it right while it's happening because a lot of people are so affected by this they get a severe vertigo and vertigo is a hard thing to sometimes describe a lot of people will say well I get dizzy or lightheaded but what they actually are experiencing is a rotational movement just like they're on that roller coaster or they're on the tilt-a-twirl and it can be associated with severe nausea and headaches and uh, can cause a lot of problems including falls but I, that's what I okay, would do. So that, uh-huh. Yeah, that sounds a lot like this. I've had a lot of trouble with balance as well, and I, and I have fallen a couple of times. Um, it, it just seems like everything's out. I don't know where up is and down is because yep. everything's kind of just going around in circles. 
Yeah, I bet bet that's where the problem is. And they may, you know, I don't think the first thing they'll do is to is to image your your skull. You can't really image those semicircular canals very well to see any kind of damage. But since you did have the fall, they may want to do some things, you know, like a CT scan or something like that. But I I doubt it. I think it's going to be fairly straightforward and they should be able to give you some maneuvers that might help. That's really good news. I was afraid it was a brain tumor. So, Pro- thank you. Yeah, probably not by what you just. Yeah, probably not by what yeah. you describe. But they're the experts on that, and they can they can help pinpoint of what's going on. Okay, well, I have an appointment with my primary care physician in a couple of weeks, so I'll talk to her about this. Yeah, uh, ask her. What you just said. T- you you might can uh, throw this out there and said you're you're really concerned that this might be BPPV, benign paroxysmal positional vertigo. Okay. You can sound incredibly Sorry. like they're going to be like, wow, how'd you come up with that? I don't know. Who told me? Yeah. <laughs> well, I really appreciate that. Thank you very much. All right, Brandon. You take care. Thanks for calling. We're going to go to Dave from Port Gibson. Good morning, Dave. Good morning. Yes, sir. What's your question this morning? Well, I want to know if God is good for a high blood pressure or out of what do is for high blood pressure? Like a medication or other things other than medication? Other than medication. Yeah, there are several things that are good for high blood pressure. Typically what we eat can affect that, and there's a really good uh, diet out there called the DASH diet. In fact, it stands for Dietary Approaches to Stop Hypertension. And if you, uh, you, you might can, you know, look that up yourself or have somebody look that up and give you that information. But basically, it's a lot of fruits and vegetables, not a whole lot of red meat, not a whole lot of, uh, not a whole lot of processed foods. And if you eat that over time, it can lower your blood pressure. And in the studies that looked at it, it lowered blood pressure at 8 to 14 points. So that may be something to look at. If you're able to do some physical activity, even as simple as walking uh, most days of the week um, and, and sort of working up to 30 minutes a day, that is also very useful. If you smoke, if you're doing anything that might, you know, sort of drive the blood pressure up and smoking will certainly do that. Quitting smoking can also do can also uh, uh, bring it down. So those are some things you can do. Sometimes you can do all of those and you still need medication, but a lot of times, if it's not that high, that might help or it might minimize the amount of medications that you have to take. If a liquid marijuana good for I'm sorry, go ahead and say that one more time. A liquid marijuana. No, not really. Now, it has been been studied a little bit, but uh, but marijuana typically won't impact the blood pressure um, continually. And that's a, another thing to think about. Like if you if you're using something, or you know, is it going to last throughout the whole day? Because if you're and, and it, you can't, it's not going to have the effect even if you're taking it like continuously. So there's a lot of good other good things out of there other than than marijuana that that can impact it. I know a lot of people look for just one or two things. To be quite honest, that's never been shown to you know like. Saying uh, maybe garlic or um, or different things that they take as a supplement, usually the more powerful thing is uh, that dash diet in uh, lowering it. And and if you look at it, you know, in comparison to other medications to treat high blood pressure, 
If you just picked any medication, 8 to 14 points is about what you're going to get from one medication. So doing that with diet and really trying to stick to it can help. Okay. All right, Dave, you take care. Thank you for calling. We're going to go to Michael in Hattiesburg. Good morning, Michael. Good morning. Thanks for taking my call. Sure. Uh, I've been on Lexapro the last 15 or 20 years, and I'm wondering how likely is that contributing to an intention tremor in my in my hands, particularly a pincher movement between the index finger and the thumb? Yeah, good question. So um, I I know it's not listed as a uh, you know the way they test this is is in different uh, different phases. And when a drug first gets tested, you know, you want to make sure that it's working. And this, this medication is, is a common one that's used for anxiety and depression. Um, either one of those are together. And um, a lot, it's very good medication. So, um, but, you know, you do have to look at the, at the side effect profile. And there's a lot of the antidepressants and, and anxiety medications in this same class that have a lot of side effects. And part of the reason why is, is how they work is they affect serotonin levels. So they actually increase your serotonin level, which is one of the, the targets uh, in, in depression or anxiety where you have serotonin levels that are lower. As far as an intention tremor, and by that we mean like when you start to do something, just for everybody else out there, it sounds like you know exactly what you're, what, what you're dealing with there, Michael. But um, and it, it's not a tremor. In other words, it rests. It's when you actually do something. And it is common. I'm guessing that's your dominant hand, Michael. Are you right-handed? I am right-handed, and, and it's worse in the right hand, but it's also in the left hand. Yeah. Uh, it started in the right hand. Started in the right hand first, and, and it's yeah. now in both hands. And they have done some post-marketing analysis for different things, and there have been some reports of movement disorders with Lexapro. I'm not aware if like when that happened though. Like I don't know if it's like right after you take it, um, and it's less likely to happen if you've been taking it as you said for 20 years, or if it would make it worse. Certainly, the serotonin levels. I can't make that. I can't tie that together in my brain about how that might be affecting it. But there are some other alter- alternatives out there. I know if you've been taking it for 20 years, it's probably doing its job, and you're probably you know pretty pleased with it. But um, that is something that might be that you might could change. You could either wean off of it over time. That's one of the medications that we can't just stop cold turkey that you usually should have to wean off of it and just see if that intention tremor changes. If it doesn't, then you could go right back on it. Um, of course, you know, that's a period of time that you're not taking it. You might have some of the some of the effects or might be some other medications in another class that might you might could take during that time. But I would say it's not. It's not a, a big likelihood that it's doing that, but it is a possibility. Okay. All right. So, like you said, uh, try, um, I was taking 10 milligrams for most of those 20 years. Mm-hmm. Last, last year, I've been taking 10 milligrams and 5 milligrams alternating every day that way. Yeah, it might no be way. worth, yeah, just talk to your to your prescriber and just say, you know, yeah. can, I, can I wean off of this um, just to see if it'll affect the, the tremor um, and that, you know, just to have that discussion. But again, if you've been taking it that long, it's probably going to be, you know, at least a couple of weeks to probably wean off of it appropriately uh, or maybe even decreasing the dose even more to five milligrams a day. Uh, just to see if you can have a therapeutic effect. That's the other thing about medications. You know, we want 
the best effect in treating whatever we're treating, but we don't want too much. We don't just want to treat to the maximum dose regardless most of the time. There may be some reasons for doing that, but um, but that one of the reasons is to minimize side effects. But again, this is one that's going to be a little hard to tease out. And uh, when I have a situation like this with any medication, I'll say, hey, can we get off this medication or maybe do something different? Let's see if the side of, if, if the potential side effect is still there. If it goes away, that's fine. We do an alternative. If the side effect stays, though, I would just go right back to the medication if we needed it. Right. Right. Okay. Well, thank you very much. Appreciate your opinion. Oh, you're welcome. Uh, you take care, Michael. Thanks for calling in. This is Southern Remedy, Dr. Jimmy with you this morning. And uh, I was going to say something at the top of the hour, and I think we've got a couple of minutes. We probably could finish up on this. And uh, this is something that I run into fairly often with my patients, and uh, particularly if I'm treating a lot of hypertension patients. So anxiety is one of those conditions that I think has a stigma to it, and it certainly uh, has a huge effect uh, on the body, on the mind, and on other conditions as well. And, um, you know, a lot of people will be very hesitant from addressing uh, a diagnosis of anxiety, and they, you know, won't, don't want to move forward with that. Another misconception is that only medications can work with anxiety. That's not necessarily true. Uh, there are other alternatives, and uh, one of those, which is very uh, useful, um, is cognitive behavioral therapy. And as I explained to a patient recently, you know, it's really about retraining your mind. We tend to think that we can't retrain our mind, or maybe that's sort of voodoo or something, but the mind is really a lot like a computer. And just like you have to learn skills when you're a baby and learning how to walk, how to talk, your brain can continue to be reprogrammed. That's what we do when we learn a new language, when we learn a new skill. We And it can be a skill like, say, playing a musical instrument to the point where, uh, where it becomes almost second nature. You just think about something and it happens. We can also do that with anxiety through cognitive behavioral therapy and somebody who's trained to do that. So our psychologists and psychiatrists are trained to do that. Um, and in some situations where you don't want to start a medication to treat that, or maybe in combination with the medication, it could be very useful. And uh, Some patients may say, well, why would I need to, I just need to get over it. I need to just deal with it. When anxiety gets to the point where it is affecting everyday life, then that is a reason to address it. Because you really, even if you have other chronic medical conditions, um, you really need to be able to deal with that in a way that's very productive and in a way that um, that allows you to do everything that you want to do. I mean, that's sort of the goals that I have with patients and we should have is like, hey, what's important to you? What do you want to do? Uh, how can we get you to that? So if that's you, I don't know. There's probably a lot of people out there because I see a lot of patients like I did this week like that. Think about that. Think about addressing that. If you don't want to do medication for that, that's great. That's fine. There's other things out there that can tr- that can help give you tools that you can do over time and that you can take with you 
the next time that you start to feel that. So that's just something to think about uh, for something that, that affects a lot of people. Southern Remedy is a production of Mississippi Public Broadcasting. Think Radio is funded in part by a grant from the University of Mississippi Medical Center. I'm Dr. Jimmy Stewart, Professor of Pediatrics and Internal Medicine at UMMC. Southern Remedy is produced by Kevin Farrell, and the podcast producer is Abram Nanny. You can tune in to MPB Think Radio every weekday morning at 11 for the full Southern Remedy lineup. This is an MPB Think Radio podcast. To hear previous shows, visit mpbonline.org or download the MPB Public Radio app to listen on your iPhone or Android phone on demand. We'll be right back.